Chapter thirty five of the Mutiny of the Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London. Chapter thirty five. What price tobacco? was Mr. Mellaire's greeting when I came on deck this morning, bruised and weary, aching in every bone and muscle from sixty hours of being tossed about. The wind had fallen to a dead calm toward morning, and the Elsinore, her several spread sails booming and slatting, rolled more miserably than ever. Mr. Mellor pointed forward of our starboard beam. I could make out a bleak land of white and jagged peaks. Staten Island, the easterly end of it, said Mr. Mellor. And I knew that we were in the position of a vessel just rounding Staten Island preliminary to bucking the horn. And yet four days ago we had run through the Straits of La Mer and stolen along toward the horn. Three days ago we had been well abreast of the horn and even a few miles past. And here we were now, starting all over again and far in the rear of where we had originally started. The condition of the men is truly wretched. During the gale the forecastle was washed out twice. This means that everything in it was afloat, and that every article of clothing, including mattresses and blankets, is wet and will remain wet in this bitter weather until we are around the horn and well up in the good weather latitudes. The same is true of the midship house. Every room in it, with the exception of the cooks and the sailmakers, which opened forward on number three hatch, is soaking, and they have no fires in their rooms with which to dry things out. I peeped into Charles Davis's room. It was terrible. He grinned to me and nodded his head. It's just as well O'Sullivan wasn't here, sir, he said. He'd a drowned in the lower bunk, and I want to tell you that I was doing some swimming before I could get into the top one. And salt water's bad for my sores. I oughtn't to be in a hole like this in Cape Horn weather. Look at the ice there on the floor. It's below freezing right now in this room, and my blankets are wet, and I'm a sick man, as any man can tell that's got a nose. If you'd been decent to the mate, you might have got decent treatment in return, I said. Huh, he sneered. You needn't think you can lose me, sir. I can grow fat on this sort of stuff. Why, sir, when I think of the court's doings in Seattle, I just couldn't die. And if you'll listen to me, sir, you'll cover the steward's money. You can't lose. I'm advising you, sir, because you're a sort of decent sort. Anybody that bets on my going over the side is a sure loser. How could you dare ship on a voyage like this in your condition? I demanded. Condition, he queried with a fine assumption of innocence. Why, that is why I did ship. I was in tip-top shape when I sailed. All this come out on me afterward. You remember seeing me aloft and up to my neck in water, and I trimmed coal below, too. A sick man couldn't do it. And remember, sir, you'll have to testify to how I did my duty at the beginning before I took down. I'll bet with you myself if you think I'm going to die, he called after me. Already the sailors show marks of the hardships they are enduring. It is surprising, in so short a time, how lean their faces have grown, how lined and seamed. They must dry their underclothing with their body heat. 
Their outer garments, under their oilskins, are soggy. And yet, paradoxically, despite their lean, drawn faces, they have grown very stout. Their walk is a waddle, and they bulge with seeming corpulency. This is due to the amount of clothing they have on. I noticed Larry, today, had on two vests, two coats, and an overcoat, with his oilskin outside of that. They are elephantine in their gait, for, in addition to everything else, they have wrapped their feet, outside their sea-boots, with gunny-sacking. It is cold, although the deck thermometer stood at thirty-three today at noon. I had water weigh the clothing I wear on deck. Omitting oilskins and boots, it came to eighteen pounds. And yet I am not any too warm in all this gear when the wind is blowing. How sailors, after having once experienced the horn, can ever sign on again for a voyage around is beyond me. It but serves to show how stupid they must be. I feel sorry for Henry, the training ship boy. He is more my own kind, and some day he will make a henchman of the afterguard and a mate like Mr. Pike. In the meantime, along with Buckwheat, the other boy who berths in the midship house with him, he suffers the same hardship as the men. He is very fair-skinned, and I noticed this afternoon, when he was pulling on a brace, that the sleeves of his oilskins, assisted by the salt water, has chafed his wrists till they are raw and bleeding and breaking out in sea-boils. Mr. Mellaire tells me that in another week there will be a plague of these boils with all hands forward. "'When do you think we'll be up with the horn again?' I innocently queried Mr. Pike. He turned upon me in a rage, as if I had insulted him, and positively snarled in my face ere he swung away without the courtesy of an answer. It is evident that he takes the sea seriously. That is why, I fancy, he is so excellent a seaman. The days pass if the interval of sombre grey that comes between the darknesses can be called day. For a week now, we have not seen the sun. Our ship's position in this waste of storm and sea is conjectural. Once, by dead reckoning, we gained up with the horn and a hundred miles south of it, and then came another sou'west gale that tore our fore-topsail and brand-new spencer out of the belt-ropes, and swept us away to a conjectured longitude east of Staten Island. Oh, I know now this great west wind that blows forever around the world south of fifty-five. And I know why the chart-makers have capitalized it, as, for example, when I read the great west wind drift. And I know why the sailing directions advise, Whatever you do, make westing, make westing. And the west wind and the drift of the west wind will not permit the Elsinore to make westing. Gale follows gale, always from the west, and we make easting. And it is bitter cold, and each gale snorts up with a prelude of driving snow. In the cabin the lamps burn all day long. No more does Mr. Pike run the phonograph, nor does Margaret ever touch the piano. She complains of being bruised and sore. I have a wrenched shoulder from being hurled against the wall, and both Wada and the steward are limping. Really, the only comfort I can find is in my bunk, so wedged with boxes and pillows that the wildest rolls cannot throw me out. 
There, save for my meals and for an occasional run on deck for exercise and fresh air, I lie and read eighteen and nineteen hours out of the twenty-four. But the unending physical strain is very wearisome. How it must be with the poor devils forward is beyond conceiving. The forecastle has been washed out several times, and everything is soaking wet. Besides, they have grown weaker, and two watches are required to do what one ordinary watch could do. Thus they must spend as many hours on the sea-swept deck and aloft on the freezing yards as I do in my warm, dry bunk. Wada tells me that they never undress, but turn into their wet bunks and their oilskins and sea-boots and wet undergarments. To look at them crawling about on deck or in the rigging is enough. They are truly weak. They are gaunt-cheeked and haggard gray of skin, with great dark circles under their eyes. The predicted plague of sea-boils and sea-cuts has come, and their hands and wrists and arms are frightfully afflicted. Now one, and now another, and sometimes several, either from being knocked down by seas, or from general miserableness, take to the bunk for a day or so off. This means more work for the others, so that the men on their feet are not tolerant of the sick ones, and a man must be very sick to escape being dragged out to work by his mates. I cannot but marvel at Andy Fay and Mulligan Jacobs. Old and fragile as they are, it seems impossible that they can endure what they do. For that matter, I cannot understand why they work at all. I cannot understand why any of them toil on and obey an order in this freezing hell of the horn. Is it because of fear of death that they do not cease work and bring death to all of us? Or is it because they are slave beasts with a slave psychology, so used all their lives to being driven by their masters, that it is beyond their mental power to refuse to obey? And yet most of them, in a week after we reach Seattle, will be on board other ships outward bound for the Horn. Margaret says the reason for this is that sailors forget. Mr. Pike agrees. He says give them a week in the southeast trades as we run up the Pacific, and they will have forgotten that they have ever been around the Horn. I wonder, can they be as stupid as this? Does pain leave no record with them? Do they fear only the immediate thing? Have they no horizons wider than a day? Then indeed do they belong where they are. They are cowardly. This was shown conclusively this morning at two o'clock. Never have I witnessed such panic fear, and it was fear of the immediate thing, fear, stupid and beast-like. It was Mr. Mellaire's watch. As luck would have it, I was reading Boa's mind of primitive man, when I heard the rush of feet over my head. The Elsinore was hove to on the port tack at the time, under very short canvas. I was wondering what emergency had brought the watch upon the poop, when I heard another rush of feet that meant the second watch. I heard no pulling and hauling, and the thought of mutiny flashed across my mind. Still nothing happened, and growing curious, I got into my sea-boots, sheepskin coat, and oilskin, put on my sou'wester and mittens, and went on deck. Mr. Pike had already dressed and was ahead of me. Captain West, who in this bad weather sleeps in the chart-room, stood in the lee doorway of the house, 
through which the lamplight streamed on the frightened faces of the men. Those of the midship house were not present, but every man jack of the forecastle, with the exception of Andy Fay and Mulligan Jacobs, as I afterwards learned, had joined in the flight aft. Andy Fay, who belonged in the watch below, had calmly remained in his bunk, while Mulligan Jacobs had taken advantage of the opportunity to sneak into the forecastle and fill his pipe. "'What is the matter, Mr. Pike?' Captain West asked. Before the mate could reply, Bert Rhine snickered. "'The devil's come aboard, sir.' But his snicker was palpably an assumption of unconcern he did not possess. The more I think over it, the more I am surprised that such keen men as the gangsters should have been frightened by what had occurred. But frightened they were, the three of them, out of their bunks and out of the precious sucrease of their brief watch below. So fear-struck was Larry that he chattered and grimaced like an ape, and shouldered and struggled to get away from the dark and into the safety of the shaft of light that shone out of the chart-house. Tony, the Greek, was just as bad, mumbling to himself and continually crossing himself. He was joined in this, as a sort of chorus, by the two Italians, Guido Bombini and Mike Cipriani. Arthur Deacon was almost in collapse, and he and Chance, the Jew, shamelessly clung to each other for support. Bob, the fat and overgrown youth, was sobbing, while the other youth, Bony the Splinter, was shivering and chattering his teeth. Yes, in the two best sailors forward, Tom Spink and the Maltese Cockney, stood in the background, their backs to the dark, their faces yearning toward the light. More than all other contemptible things in this world, there are two that I loathe and despise. Hysteria in a woman, fear and cowardice in a man. The first turns me to ice. I cannot sympathize with hysteria. The second turns my stomach. Cowardice in a man is to me positively nauseous, and this fear-smitten mass of human animals on our reeling poop raised my gorge. Truly, had I been a god at that moment, I should have annihilated the whole mass of them. No, I should have been merciful to one. He was the fawn. His bright, pain-liquid, and flashing eager eyes strained from face to face with desire to understand. He did not know what had occurred, and being stone deaf, had thought the rush aft a response to a call for all hands. I noticed Mr. Mallaire. He may be afraid of Mr. Pike, and he is a murderer, but at any rate he has no fear of the supernatural. With two men above him in authority, although it was his watch, there was no call for him to do anything. He swayed back and forth in balance to the violent motions of the Elsinore, and looked on with eyes that were amused and cynical. "'What does the devil look like, my man?' Captain West asked. Bert Ryan grinned sheepishly. "'Answer the captain,' Mr. Pike snarled at him. Oh, it was murder, sheer murder, that leapt into the gangster's eyes for the instant, in acknowledgment to the snarl. Then he replied to Captain West, I didn't wait to see, sir, but it's one whale of a devil. He's as big as an elephant, sir, volunteered Bill Quigley. I seen him face to face, sir. He almost got me when I run out of the forecastle. Oh, Lord, sir, Larry moaned. 
The way he hit the house, sir, it was the call to judgment. Your theology is mixed, my man, Captain West smiled quietly, though I could not help seeing how tired was his face and how tired were his wonderful samurai eyes. He turned to the mate. Mr. Pike, will you please go forward and interview this devil? Fasten him up and tie him down, and I'll take a look at him in the morning. Yes, sir, said Mr. Pike, and Kipling's line came to me. Woman, man, or god, or devil, was there anything we feared? And as I went forward through the wall of darkness after Mr. Pike and Mr. Mallaire, along the freezing, slender, sea-swept bridge, not a sailor dared to accompany us, other lines of the galley slave drifted through my brain, such as, Our bulkheads bulged with cotton, and our masts were stepped in gold. We ran a mighty merchandise of niggers in the hold. And, By the brand upon my shoulder, by the gall of clinging steel, By the welts the whips have left me, by the scars that never heal. And, Battered chain gangs of the orlop, gristled draughts of years gone by. And I caught my great radiant vision of Mr. Pike, galley slave of the race, and a driver of men under men greater than he, the faithful henchman, the able sailor man, battered and grizzled, branded and galled, the servant of the sweep head that made mastery of the sea. I know him now. He can never again offend me. I forgive him everything, the whiskey raw on his breath the day I came aboard at Baltimore, his moroseness when sea and wind do not favor, his savagery to the men, his snarl and his sneer. On top the midship house we got a ducking that makes me shiver to recall. I had dressed too hastily properly to fasten my oilskin about my neck, so that I was wet to the skin. We crossed the next span of bridge through driving spray, and were well up on the top of the forward house when something adrift on the deck hit the forward wall with a terrific smash. "'Whatever it is, it's playing the devil,' Mr. Pike yelled in my ear, as he endeavored to locate the thing by the dry battery light stick which he carried. The pencil of light traveled over dark water, white with foam that churned upon the deck." There it goes, Mr. Pike cried, as the Elsinore dipped by the head and hurtled the water forward. The light went out as the three of us caught holds and crouched to a deluge of water from overside. As we emerged from under the forecastle head, we heard a tremendous thumping and battering. Then, as the bow lifted for an instant in the pencil of light that immediately lost it, I glimpsed a vague black object that bounded down the inclined deck where no water was. What became of it we could not see. Mr. Pike descended to the deck, followed by Mr. Mallaire. Again, as the Elsinore dipped by the head and fetched a surge of seawater from aft along the runway, I saw the dark object bound forward directly at the mates. They sprang to safety from its charge. The light went out, while another icy sea broke aboard. For a while I could see nothing of the two men. Next, in the light flashed from the stick, I guessed that Mr. Pike was in pursuit of the thing. He evidently must have captured it at the rail against the starboard rigging, and caught a turn around it with the loose end of a rope. As the vessel rolled to windward, some sort of struggle seemed to be going on. 
The second mate sprang to the mate's assistance, and together, with more loose ends, they seemed to subdue the thing. I descended to see. By the light stick we made it out to be a large, barnacle-crusted cask. "'She's been afloat for forty years,' was Mr. Pike's judgment. "'Look at the size of the barnacles, and look at the whiskers.' "'And it's full of something,' said Mr. Mellaire. "'Hope it isn't water.' I rashly lent a hand when they started to work the cast forward, and taking advantage of the rolls and pitches, to the shelter under the forecastle head. As a result, even through my mittens, I was cut by the sharp edges of broken shell. "'It's liquor of some sort,' said the mate, "'but we won't risk broaching it till morning.' "'But where did it come from?' I asked. "'Over the side's the only place it could have come from.' Mr. Pike played the light over it. Look at it. It's been afloat for years and years. The stuff ought to be well seasoned, commented Mr. Mellaire. Leaving them to lash the casks securely, I stole along the deck to the forecastle and peered in. The men, in their headlong flight, had neglected to close the doors, and the place was afloat. In the flickering light from a small and very smoky sea lamp, it was a dismal picture. No self-respecting caveman, I am sure, would have lived in such a hole. Even as I looked, a bursting sea filled the runway between the house and rail, and through the doorway in which I stood the freezing water rushed waist-deep. I had to hold on to escape being swept inside the room. From a top bunk, lying on his side, Andy Fay regarded me steadily with his bitter blue eyes. Seated on the rough table of heavy planks, his sea-booted feet swinging in the water, Mulligan Jacobs pulled at his pipe. When he observed me, he pointed to pulpy book-pages that floated about. "'Me library's gone to hell,' he mourned, as he indicated the flotsam. "'There's me Byron, and there goes Zola and Browning with a piece of Shakespeare running neck and neck, and what's left of Antichrist making a bad last.' and there's carlyle and zola that cheek by jowl you can't tell em apart here the elsinore lay down to starboard and the water in the forecastle poured out against my legs and hips my wet mittens slipped on the ironwork and i swept down the runway into the scuppers where i was turned over and over by another flood that had just boarded from windward i know i was rather confused and that i had swallowed quite a deal of salt water ere i got my hands on the rungs of the ladder and climbed to the top of the house on my way aft along the bridge i encountered the crew coming forward mr mellaire and mr pike were talking in the lee of the chart house and inside as i passed below captain west was smoking a cigar after a good rub-down in dry pyjamas i was scarcely back in my bunk with the mind of primitive man before me when the stampede over my head was repeated i waited for the second rush it came and i proceeded to dress the scene on the poop duplicated the previous one save that the men were more excited more frightened they were babbling and chattering altogether shut up mr pike was snarling when i came upon them one at a time and answer the captain's question it ain't no barrel this time sir tom spink said it's alive and if it ain't the devil it's the ghost of a drowned man i seen em plain and clear 
He's a man, or was a man once. They was two of them, sir, Richard Giller, one of the bricklayers, broke in. I think he looked like Petro Marinkovich, sir, Tom Spinks went on. And the other was Jesperson, I seen him, Giller added. They was three of them, sir, said Nosey Murphy. O'Sullivan, sir, was the other one. They ain't devils, sir. They're drowned men. They come aboard right over the bows, and they moved slow, like drowned men. Sorensen seen the first one first. He caught my arm and pointed, and then I seen him. He was on top the forward house. And Olison seen him, and Deacon, sir, and Hackey. We all seed him, sir. And the second one, and when the rest run away, I stayed long enough to see the third one. Maybe there's more. I didn't wait to see. Captain West stopped the man. Mr. Pike, he said wearily, will you straighten this nonsense out? Yes, sir, Mr. Pike responded, then turned on the men. Come on, all of you. There's three devils to tie down this time. But the men shrank away from the order and from him. For two cents, I heard Mr. Pike growl to himself, then choke off utterance. He flung about on his heel and started for the bridge. In the same order as on the previous trip, Mr. Mallor second and I bringing up the rear, we followed. It was a similar journey, save that we caught a ducking midway on the first span of the bridge, as well as the ducking on the midship house. We halted on top the forward house. In vain Mr. Pike flashed his light stick. Nothing was to be seen nor heard save the white-flecked dark water on our deck, the roar of the gale in our rigging, and the crash and thunder of seas falling aboard. We advanced halfway across the last span of bridge to the forecastle head, and were driven to pause and hang on at the foremast by a bursting sea. Between the drives of spray Mr. Pike flashed his stick. I heard him exclaim something. Then he went on to the forecastle head, followed by Mr. Mellaire, while I waited by the foremast, clinging tight, and endured another ducking. Through the emergencies I could see the pencil of light appearing and disappearing, darting here and there. Several minutes later the mates were back with me. Half our headgears carried away, Mr. Pike told me. We must have run into something. I felt a jar right after you went below, sir, last time, said Mr. Mallaire. Only I thought it was a thump of sea. So did I feel it, the mate agreed. I was just taking off my boots. I thought it was a sea. But where are the three devils? Broaching the cask, the second mate suggested. We made the forecastle head, descended the iron ladder, and went forward, inside, underneath, out of the wind and sea. There lay the cask, securely lashed. The size of the barnacles on it was astonishing. They were as large as apples and inches deep. A downfling of bow brought a foot of water about our boots, and as the bow lifted and the water drained away, it drew out from the shell-crusted cask streamers of seaweed a foot or so in length. Led by Mr. Pike and watching our chance between seas, we searched the deck and rails between the forecastle head and the forward house and found no devils. The mate stepped into the forecastle doorway, and his light stick cut like a dagger through the dim illumination of the murky sea lamp. And we saw the devils. Nosey Murphy had been right. There were three of them. Let me give the picture. 
a drenched and freezing room of rusty paint-scabbed iron low-roofed double-tiered with bunks reeking with the filth of thirty men despite the washing of the sea in a top bunk on his side in sea-boots and oilskin staring steadily with blue bitter eyes andy fay on the table pulling at a pipe with hanging legs dragged this way and that by the churn of water mulligan jacobs solemnly regarding three men sea-booted and bloody who stand side by side of a height and not duly tall swaying in unison to the elsinore's down-flinging and uplifting but such men i know my east side and my east end and i am accustomed to the faces of all the ruck of races yet with these three men i was at fault the mediterranean had surely never bred such a breed nor had scandinavia they were not blondes they were not brunettes nor were they of the brown or black or yellow their skin was white under a bronze of weather wet as was their hair it was plainly a colourless sandy hair yet their eyes were dark and yet not dark they were neither blue nor grey nor green nor hazel nor were they black they were topaz pale topaz and they gleamed and dreamed like the eyes of great cats they regarded us like walkers in a dream these pale-haired storm waifs with pale topaz eyes they did not bow they did not smile in no way did they recognize our presence save that they looked at us and dreamed but andy fay greeted us it's a hell of a night and not a wink of sleep with these goings on he said now where did they blow in from a night like this mulligan jacobs complained you've got a tongue in your mouth mr pike snarled why ain't you asked em as though you didn't know i could use the tongue in me mouth you old stiff jacob snarled back but it was no time for their private feud mr pike turned on the dreamy newcomers and addressed them in the mangled and aborted phrases of a dozen languages such as the world-wandering anglo-saxon has had every opportunity to learn but his too stubborn brained and wilful mouth to wrap his tongue around the visitors made no reply they did not even shake their heads their faces remained peculiarly relaxed and placid incurious and pleasant while in their eyes floated profounder dreams yet they were human the blood of their injuries stained them and clotted on their clothes dutchmen snorted mr pike with all due contempt for other breeds as he waved them to make themselves at home in any of the bunks mr pike's ethnology is narrow outside his own race he is aware of only three races niggers dutchmen and dagoes again our visitors proved themselves human they understood the mate's invitation and glancing first at one another they climbed into three top bunks and closed their eyes i could swear the first of them was asleep in half a minute we'll have to clean up forward or we'll be having the sticks about our ears the mate said already starting to depart get the men along mr mellaire and call out the carpenter end of chapter thirty five